Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So Cass, I know that I have joked before on the show that my alter ego is a fashion historian by day and an elusive international couture thief by night. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to say that if this you know, flight of imagination were actually true. One of the very first things that I would do is suit up in my Courage cat suit, don my Balenciaga cape, and head straight out to Detroit because that is the location of one of the world's greatest private collections of haute couture. And one that was patiently accumulated over more than eight decades, no less, by today's guests. And if you do the math there, dress listeners, the genesis of this collection began before our guest was even old enough to attend elementary school. Just such a wonderful story. Many of the first pieces in her collection were actually given to her to play dress up in by friends of her father who were cleaning out their closet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Let's just pause and think about that. Um, But as we will hear more about regular closets, obviously these were not. Today, we welcome the one, the only, Sandy Schreier to the show, and her private collection was recently the subject of the 2019-2020 exhibition in pursuit of fashion, the Sandy Schreier Collection at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which, by the way, I just have to add, is hardly the only museum to borrow some of her pieces for their exhibitions. You know, museums like the Louvre. Just throwing that one out there. You you have to know that you're doing something right when you get that phone call. So uh, Cass, I'm curious, do you have a favorite piece or pieces that were in the show of Sandy's collection at the Met? It's basically impossible to choose, but I'm going to try. I mean, because there's something so playful about everything she collects. I mean, it's clear she has a very specific eye for these sorts of details and this sorts of energy that all these designers are putting out. So I love the pre-World War One pieces because 1913-1914 was such a fun era in fashion history. It's really hard to pick, but one of my all-time favorite pieces, I think, is a gown by Gilbert Adrian which was one of many featured in the exhibitions, but it just has this sense of humor that Adrian had. And it's like, has these, it's a silk crepe or silk rayon floor length gown, and it has little kittens running all over it. So at the hem and across the shoulder, but really impossible to pick. I know there's so many. I think that one of my favorites was this Jesse Franklin Turner tea gown. And it was layers of peach and apricot silk chiffon. And it was completely unadorned except for this ribbon that kind of loosely defines the waist. And because it was unadorned, that really showcases the cut, which is somewhat caftan-like. And when I first saw this piece, I stood there for some time just kind of like staring at it and not moving (laughs) um, because it is so simple, but it's also so beautiful 
and so rare because Jesse Franklin Turner is kind of one of these very early American designers to make a name for herself in the 19-teens, the 20s, and the 30s. And these informal tea gowns were really her specialty. Yes. And what's incredible is that as special as this piece is, it's but one of, wait for it, 15,000 pieces in Sandy's collection. What a special (laughs) treat to welcome one of the foremost fashion and textile collectors in the world to the show. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Sandy, we are absolutely delighted to have you with us on Dressed today. Well, April, the feeling is mutual. I am so glad to be here with you. Yes, and so for our listeners who work in the field of fashion, history or fashion studies, an introduction to you probably isn't necessary. You know, your reputation as a consummate collector will definitely precede you for some of our listeners. But other of those may recognize your name because they may have seen a glimpse of your collection um, at the Costume Institute at the Met in 2019 and 2020 because they devoted an entire exhibition of around, and correct me if I'm wrong, around 80 pieces. Correct. For our listeners who might not know your name, how would you describe your profession? That's a really tough question. Because for years and years and years, I've been describing myself as a fashion historian first, um, an author, um, a TV personality, um, uh, a wife, a mother, on and on, a movie star, etc. At the very end of the list, I add a collector. And many years ago, Kathy Horn, who I'm sure you know. I do. And Kathy Horn was here for four and a half years working for the Detroit News. Mm -hmm. And she was a good friend of mine. She was at my house probably, oh, I'd say at least four to five times a week. And um, she would always say, you got the list wrong, Schreier. Number one, you are a collector. And I said, absolutely not, because that part of me was a secret. That was a a very big secret. And it still is probably a secret here in Detroit. It's something that people really don't know about me. And I think the reason I kept it a secret is because I was made fun of. I was laughed at, and when reporters and photographers start arriving from all over the world in August of 19, uh, after the Met announced that they were doing a big exhibition and that uh, press release was the end of July, I was at the Detroit Institute of Arts showing off the Diego Rivera murals uh, to a photojournalist from Oslo. Mm-hmm. And who had come in to do a cover magazine story about me and take pictures of me in my home and at the Detroit Institute of Arts and various places in Detroit. And a woman came running up and said, aren't you the little girl with all those old clothes? And that's what my reputation is 
here in Detroit and it will never change. And so I kept that part of me that began when I was two and a half years old, that part has been a big secret. And even though that's the case, people here in my hometown, as Bette Midler has said to me a million times, Schreier, you'll never get to be a star in your hometown. <sighs> and she is right. That's exactly <laughs> so. Well, I'm I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you have been collecting since you were two and a half and that you were known as the little girl with all the old clothes. Perhaps we should start at the beginning. You know, it's almost like you were destined to become a collector of fashion and couture. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up in Detroit? And also, what is your earliest memory of fashion? Well, my dad was a New Yorker and his parents were dead. He was the youngest and his siblings were married and having children and he didn't have enough money to go to school and support himself. So he went to night school for college. And during the daytime, he worked at a store called Russick's, which was the specialty store in New York, owned by photographer Deanne Arbus's mom and dad. Mm -hmm. And one day, Mr. Nemeroff, the owner, saw my father in the mailroom. And my father was extremely handsome. And he walked in the mailroom and said, who are you and what are you doing here, et cetera, et cetera. And he looked at him and he said, uh, do you have a wife and children? And my dad was really young. He said, no, not yet. And so Mr. Nemeroff said, you're so good looking. I have a great idea. What do you want for yourself in the future? And my dad said, I don't know. I'm going to college at night school to find that out. And he said, how would you like to learn how to be a furrier? I would like to teach you. And he said, you are so good looking that I think that the women customers will all fall in love with you and come to Russick's to buy their furs. And that's exactly what happened. My dad <laughs> got to be very popular. And when Russick's opened his branch store in Detroit, and the reason they opened the branch store in Detroit was so that all the automotive Titans wives who lived in Gross Point and Bloomfield Hills and were shopping in New York could find a place to shop that was even closer to home and they could buy a lot more. And so Russick's opened, I think, something like six or eight years before my dad got here. Mm -hmm. And my dad was sent to open the fur department and be the head furrier. And he met my mom, who was a Detroiter, and the rest is history. And um, my mother, when I was two and a half, my mother gave birth to one of my sisters. And uh, in those days, there wasn't pre-K or nursery school. So my dad decided to let my mother relax and get used to having a new baby and recuperate from childbirth and to take me to the store. And he took me to Russick's with him, not knowing whether it would last a day or an hour or a week. And it lasted until I started kindergarten <laughs> until the age of five because I loved going with him. I loved 
the fur department, of course, but I love the bridal department. And I love the couture department and the jewelry department and the millinery department. But best of all, in every single dressing room, there was a copy of Vogue and Bazaar magazine. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen a fashion magazine before because my mother was an athlete and much more interested in sports than she was in fashion. And so we didn't have any in my house. And it's really kind of fascinating that according to what I heard from my father and I heard from lots of people who uh, worked at the store when I was younger and they would tell me stories about how I was sitting there all the time going through page by page of Vogue and what was called Harper's Bazaar in those days and ooing and eyeing and swooning over the clothes. And my collection began because my dad's clientele, who were the Fords and the Dodges and the famous automotive wives, Mm -hmm. they would see this little girl who I did look like Shirley Temple then, and I have pictures to prove it. And they thought I was darling and adorable. And they start sending me gifts of their couture, their couture, which was seldom worn and on occasion never been worn couture. And that's how my collection of 15,000 pieces began. Yeah, you're two and a half. <laughs> Destiny, <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Destiny, you know, this, this collection was being amassed before you could even read or write or even read those fashion magazines that you were looking at. That's right. Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazine were my picture books. They were my mother gooses. And I looked at all the pictures. I didn't know what I was looking at. But when I was older, by the time I got to be six, seven, eight years old, I recognized names that I had seen over and over again, like Chanel, and Scaparelli, and Patu, Pat-Can, Mamboucher. I mean, those names, I had no idea who they were, but they became very recognizable to me because I had seen them in these magazines for years. And by the time I was seven and eight, my dad had, in 1946, he left Russex and he opened his own first salon which was a block away from the Cultural Center, Mm. which was the Detroit Institute of Arts and the main branch of the Detroit Library. And I had my dad take me to the library and I would ask the librarian, I would say, I want books about fashion. Well, there weren't any. There were books about arms and armor, but there was nothing about haute couture or high fashion or the gifts that these people were sending me had labels that had the names that were in the magazines, like Chanel, Scaparelli, et cetera, Patu. And I wanted to know who these people were. And so there was no way of me finding out. This happened by osmosis as the years went by. And as you know, or you're very young, as you don't know, All the market that's flooded with fashion books today, that began in the mid-80s. Before that, there was really nothing to read. There were books like 
Scaparelli wrote a book called Shocking. Mm -hmm. And Lily Dashay wrote a book called uh, Talking Through My Hats or whatever it was. I'm sorry if I've got the title wrong. That's right. (laughs) But all these great books that I have in my library, those were, you know, their memoirs is what I was finding. But I wasn't finding anything to teach me about the history of fashion. So I'm really self-taught. And it really came from the collection itself. I want to ask you a little bit more about these early years of collecting when you were still in school, because you're amassing more and more and more garments as part of your collection. So where and how were you keeping things? Because you know, you began educating yourself on the history of fashion through primary sources at the time in terms of the magazines, but collections management is a whole other field of study and pursuit. Well, that period of time was very difficult for me because every Halloween, my mother, uh, in those days, you didn't go to a store and buy Halloween costumes. Your mother or your aunt or a cousin made costumes for their nieces or their daughters. And I have two younger sisters. And my mother, I think she was very talented and she made really unusual costumes, but she hated doing it. And she would start up in the summertime sewing and making these costumes for us to wear at Halloween. And in those days, I don't know if they still do it now, but there were Halloween parties in school. So you wore your costume, not to just to go out begging, but you also had a big party in school. And then there was a contest. So everybody, of course, wanted to win as the best dressed Halloween costume. And my mother, you know, I think that my mother was very competitive too. Because <laughs> she wanted all the neighbors to say, Oh, Molly, your costumes for your daughters are the best, you know, but every year I was something that was very American. I was either Martha Washington. My favorite was the Statue of Liberty. That was me. So it was very difficult for me once the collection started growing and once these wonderful wives of the automotive heads were bringing me all this couture. My mother said, I don't need to make anything anymore. You and your sisters can wear the gowns. I'm just going to cut them up and I'm going to make them shorter and I'm going to cut them apart. Well, there was nothing that taught me to say to my mother, don't do it don't touch them. But my mother and father years later said, I used to run in the bathroom, lock the door and scream and yell and cry and say, I'll never come out of here if you touch those pieces. (laughs) So, and I never, ever tried anything on. And all the reporters from all over the world, I think that's the question that they were the most It's not that they thought I was lying, but they found it so hard to believe that this little girl didn't want to try on those things. And I love getting playing dress up in my mother's clothes, but I would never put on anything that the auto wives gave me ever, ever. 
And I fought bitterly with my parents about it. But what also happened is most of them brought the original couture boxes that they came in. Oh, wow. And so I left them in the boxes. And you asked how I stored them. Well, we had an unfinished room in our house. And my parents bought our house when they were very young. And I think that my mother was pregnant with me at that time. And they decided to cut corners. And one corner that they cut was leaving one room unfinished so that it was bare bones in there. And there was nothing in there except my mother used it as a storage room. And guess who took over the storage room? (laughs) I think we know the answer to that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's how it began. You know, I really didn't know of anything about acid-free boxes or acid-free tissue or anything about conservation of these rare pieces of couture until my teen years. And by that time, I was doing research on my own and I was driving the Detroit Institute of Arts crazy, asking them questions. And they don't have any costume department, but they were really good at answering my questions. And so I did know somewhat, and I was doing the right thing. And you know, I really have common sense, and common sense taught me that you wouldn't let these objects sit in the in a hot closet. And you also, and don't forget, there was no air conditioning in those days. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to keep them in the coolest place in the house. And that unfinished room was very cool. So, I mean, I did the best that I could. And then many, many years later, there was a conservator. I guess all the directors of the DIA, and that stands for Detroit Institute of Arts, got fed up with my letters. And they turned them (laughs) off over to their textile conservator, Mary Ballard. And Mary called me up on the phone one day and said, I'd like to make an appointment to see you. And she came to the house and she brought with her Krista Thurman, who was the head of the costume department at the Art Institute of Chicago. And the two of them were in shock when they saw what I had. And they couldn't believe what I had. And they really, Mary took me under her wing and she taught me all about acid-free boxes and acid-free tissue. But you have to understand that that was a long, long time later. That was decades later. Mm -hmm. And the collection had grown by leaps and bounds. And it was really a miracle that my parents didn't throw it out because I was a collector of other things as well. I love the movies. The movies have always been a major part of my life. And it's really hard for people to understand that someone like myself who loves the movies and the costuming of the Hollywood movies so much did not collect Hollywood costume. The only Hollywood costume that's in my collection are pieces designed by the great designers. Like I have Donald Brooks costumes from the movie Star, or I have Saint Laurent's costumes from the movie, The Pink Panther, which is the only American movie that he did. I didn't know that he did the costumes for that. That's amazing. Yeah, he did. He did. So I think that being that I'm interested in art 
and I'm interested in fashion as an art form, I think that my retailing is in my genes. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that my artistic, the artistic side of me was in my genes at all. I think that that was something that was a gift from God. It could be argued that sitting there um, with those fashion magazines, you know, when you're three, four, five, you were training your eye then, right? And and even then, and you know, the magazines oftentimes blended, you know, art and fashion and fashion and art. So it's almost like a visual education that you were getting by flipping those pages, one could say. That's right. But I've always been interested in art as well as fashion. When I was a little girl, as I said, when my dad moved to his own fur salon, which was called Edward Miller Company, and he was right, as I said, he was a neighbor of the DIA. And we would go, I would make him take me to the museum at least once a week. And I would look at all these paintings and sculpture, and my head would translate the paintings into clothing. And I would see the similarities, especially in somebody who's worked like Mariano Fortuny. All the Fortuny textiles looked like the paintings to me. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the sculpture, of course, Mariano did those beautiful Delphos dresses. And the old Greek sculpture looks exactly like those because that was where his influence came from. And that's what I figured out. And that's why it was important to me. And so I'll shut up so you can ask me a question. Well, what I was going to ask you is, is did you go on to study art or art history formally as part of your education? Because I know you did go to college. Yes, I did. And I studied art history in college. When I was in high school, and I think going into the 11th grade, Everybody had to have a meeting with their counselor to talk about whether or not you're going to be in a college program or you're going to be in a retailing program. And I wanted to be in both. And my advisor said, you can't do that. It's not allowed. And I said, then I'll, I'll quit school and I'll run away. And I threatened <laughs> them. And what I did was, I stayed later after school so that I could take both. So I was taking college prep and I was taking retailing at the same time. And so I was taking, because I love reading and I love literature and I love art, and I was the director of the senior play. And I always wanted to, I wanted to be the star. And the next best thing was I was made the director. And what's funny about that is I think back now, I probably am much better at being a director than I am at being a star. Anyway, yes, that was always on my mind. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But don't forget, in my day, all parents wanted their daughters to do was get married. But my parents wanted me to get married, but to go to college as well. And I started dating my husband. We weren't really dating, but I met him when we were in our early teens. And we started going together after meeting at um, summer camp. And his interest in art and music was zero. But 
he was hot for me. And so he, <laughs> so he said, anything I asked him, he said, yes. So I said, let's go to the museum. And it was yes. And let's go to a concert. And it was always yes. And I was just saying to somebody, we really had nothing in common, except we loved each other so much that he was interested in anything that I did. And I was interested in what he did. And he became a very successful trial attorney, which made me very proud of him. But in turn, he was very proud of me as well. And he offered me the fantasy life that I've had because until all these articles start appearing, which, as I said, happened in the fall of 19, I never looked at my life as being a fantasy. But every reporter has always used that word in every one of their stories. And I guess that so many students and young people here in this community would come up to me and ask what they should do in order to achieve the success that I've achieved. And I said, and this isn't being negative about Detroit because I love where I live and I wouldn't be here if I didn't love being here. And I was born and raised here and I'm still here, but it's very difficult being here. This used to be one of the fashion capitals of the world. Did you know that? Yeah. And, and and I just wanted to say, you know, I'm also from the Midwest. I'm from Kansas City originally. And I think that a lot of people seriously underestimate the cosmopolitanness of cities like Detroit, Kansas City, Chicago. There is a very real high-end fashion scene in these cities. Absolutely. And when you looked at the fashion magazines back in the 20s and 30s, all the pictures, most of them, instead of being models, when they were using photographers instead of fashion illustrators, the pictures were of socialites more than models. And 50% of the socialites lived in Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And they were all mostly automotive wives. And they were the ones that were going to Paris. They were the ones that were buying the couture. They were the ones that were being photographed for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazine. And when there was a big shindig, whether it was related to cars or whether it was related to the opening of the symphony at the beginning of the symphony season or a big opening of an art show, art exhibition at the DIA, everybody was photographed and it was always in Vogue and Harper's Bazaar magazine. Yeah, pulling out all the stops. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, you know, everyone thinks that that's very unusual, or young people think that, but it was a given in those days. Mm-hmm. Fashion was here. That's why David Nemiroff of Russick sent, that's why he opened up two branch stores only one in Detroit and one in Chicago. And from what I've heard, the one in Detroit was much, much better store than the one in Chicago. So Detroit has played a very significant role in your life, your whole life through. But after college, 
you ended up in London. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because you were, you fell in with the fashion crowd. How did you end up in London and what were you up to when you were there? Well, it wasn't after college. Actually, I used to have dark brown hair and it used to be, it may look thick to you now, but it was much, much, much thicker than it is now. And it was and still is curly, but it can be blown out straight. And my picture actually appeared in Life magazine with the Vidal Sassoon hairdo in the 60s. And uh, I modeled for Vidal Sassoon and uh, Jean Chacot from California. The movie Shampoo was based on Jean Chacot's life. And uh, Vidal and I got to be good friends. And his wife, his first wife was Beverly, and she was having babies. And at that time, I was having babies, and I was a hair model. I mean, I was more than a hair model. I was modeling also because it was fun, and I was close to designers. I got to meet designers when they came to Detroit. And Vidal always said, Sandy, you have to come to London. I have some friends like Mary Quant, Sandra Rose, Thea Porter. I want to introduce you to all my friends. And that's how it began. It's so lovely. You're right there, right in the thick of it. All of it. <laughs> right, right. And, and a lot of things in my life and meeting with designers, some of it happened on purpose, but some of it was by accident. When my youngest daughter, Lizzie, was, I think, three years old, my husband was a young new lawyer. And so my kids are all 14 months apart. And the first three were all in nursery school or in kindergarten or first grade. And I took Lizzie with me downtown Detroit because I had a modeling job at JL Hessen Company, which was the biggest store, one of the biggest in the United States and certainly the biggest in the Midwest. And somebody from the textile department saw me and said, there's going to be a big show and I'm bringing in the head of Burlington Industries for a mother-daughter fashion show. And your daughter is so darling. And uh, my daughter actually looks just like me and had a head full of dark curly hair. And I did as well at that. Well, probably at that time I was blowing it out straight, but we went and we became models for this fashion show. And the head of Burlington Industries was a woman by the name of Francine Coffey. And I got very chit-chatty with her and invited her back to the house for dinner. And a lot of noise going on with four babies. But I said to her, I'm also a designer because I was designing. I, I designed the Supremes costumes. And Miss Mary has been on the show. That's great. And I designed lots of things. And I was at that point in time designing for Bendel's in New York. And I was designing a line of accessories. And when Francine came to the house and looked at these accessories, she said, you know, Burlington is bringing in this brand new designer who has his own company. He used to design for Christian Dior, but he has just decided started the Yves Saint Laurent company. And he is going to come in for Burlington. And it's the first time he's going to be in the United States. And I would like you to do all his accessories, which I did. And I met Yves Saint Laurent, which meant nothing to me at the time. <laughs> so that was the beginning of a very long relationship with him. 
that went on for many years. Wow. So you're modeling, you're designing, but you're still collecting. Am I correct? Absolutely. Collecting is in my blood. I, I mean, I've had so many people say to me, and someone last week said, when are you going to stop collecting? And I said, when I'm dead, <laughs> not a day, not a moment before. It's just, you know, there's a collector who was a very dear friend of mine, and her name is Muriel Callis Newman. And she collected art, modern art. And there are, I believe, two galleries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that with her wonderful Jackson Pollocks and great artists that she gave them before she passed away. And she asked me, when do you plan to stop collecting? And I said, Muriel, have you stopped collecting? And she said, yes, she had stopped. And I really thought about it. And I thought, that that type of collector, and there's a lot of collectors like that, who make a concerted effort to collect, but they're doing it for various reasons. One of it could be financial. One of it could be status. But I was never collecting for either one of those reasons. Somehow, as I said to you at the beginning of this interview, somehow, This is a gift from God and it's in my blood. And I just, it's part of my DNA. Well, I want to ask you, what do you look for when you're acquiring pieces? In the press, you've stated in the past, I look for something that sings and dances. So I'm curious, what is that? And what does it feel like when you see something that you know is the one? When I see something that, makes my heart race, makes my eyes bug out of my head, makes me very excited. And I gasp because as a little girl, I would look at it and go, I mean, that is something that I wanted to have. It was never, ever the label. Mm -hmm. But as I got more educated, I was able to, I mean, and learned all about, let's take Paul Poirier. When I learned more about his life and I learned about the things that he designed and I actually saw pictures of his beautiful couture, especially his costumes for his wife, Denise, I made up my mind that there was one thing that would be my goal. I would find Poiré's lampshade dress. And if I ever found that, that I could never collect afterward because everything afterward would be (laughs) a downer because that would be the peak, the pinnacle. Well, I think that God intended me to collect until the end of my life because I don't think there are any quarry lampshade dresses out there. There were very, very few made. And I know where the few are that exist. And thank goodness they are in good hands at good museums and being taken care of beautifully, I'm glad to say. But sadly enough, I don't think I'll ever find them. I, I will never find one, let alone more than one. It would be nice to think that some still exist, but I doubt it. Sandy, 
Needless to say, you will certainly be the first call we make if we ever do run across an extant <laughs> lampshade dress. Thank you so much for joining us for part one. That's right, dress listeners. Part two is coming later this week. You did not think that was it, did you? No, no, no. Of course, we have a lot more questions for Sandy. Including an amazing story about some of the poires that she did Ooh. find. <laughs> so, you know, not to leave you hanging, dress listeners, but you're definitely going to want to tune in to hear this one. So join us Thursday for more. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider where your fashion passion comes from next time you get dressed. And of course, we will be posting some pictures of some of these incredible treasures from Sandy's collection on our Instagram this week. You can find those at dressed underscore podcast. You can, of course, also DM us there if you'd like to send us a message and say hello. And alternately, you can always email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. More with Sandy coming your way Thursday. Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.